This is Thomas DePolo. This is Max. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. All right, so uh, welcome, Shane Ivy, to the show. And for the one listener out there who maybe doesn't know who you are, just what's your uh, what's your relationship to Delta Green? Uh, hi, thanks for having me on. I'm one of the uh, I'm one of the uh, authors of Delta Green, the role playing game, and a number of scenarios for it. And um, been editing Delta Green since 2007, I guess 2006. And uh, done a lot of other things, but that's that's primarily my relationship with Delta Green. I'm part of the Delta Green partnership with Dennis Detweller and Scott Glancy and John Tynes. And uh, yeah, I mean, beyond that, really what I'd like to hear is you guys tell me what you know and like about me, because that would be awesome for my anxiety and ego these days. Nice. Well, I'll tell you that I, you said that you are all new Delta Green. And like maybe a little bit of the old game before the Kickstarter in Odd in mm-hmm. Seven, I really like that you took a game based on Call of Cthulhu, which is a game that I don't like, and <laughs> streamlined it and made it better. Cool, thank and you. That's a good you, start. You did some quality of life improvements to the system. You slimmed the skill list down a little bit, which I that's which is like the the you know an issue that I get irrationally upset about when I play games. So uh-huh. uh, there's. Uh, Something nice, I'll say. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Yeah, the skills the skills is interesting um, because I don't want to get off on a tangent, but I'm I'm working on a new game right this show now. Is nothing but and, go ahead. And okay, good. And that's a and and that's a key challenge because it's a it's it's a, it's in a genre that sort of lends itself to uh, very detailed skill trees. Um, but I'm I'm trying so I'm trying to sort of strike a balance between making that a feature of the game that's interesting and making it so bloated that players just throw their hands up and wish that they'd never heard of it. Is this your uh, Wild West game? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've coming I'm coming on that off of uh, I mean I've, I've I own I don't know I think most of the Western RPGs that have come along, but uh, but I'm, I'm coming off of years and I don't know twelve years of running Aces and Eights, which is uh, like arcane and it's a uh, esoteric approach to uh, skills and everything else so stolze was super willing to tell us all about all the products that he was shilling for his kickstarts and stuff so if you feel the desire to do that you go right ahead well, i think people would like to know what's coming up yeah what's yeah cool yeah well this i mean this is something what the that game is it's not imminent um it's still very much kind of inchoate and in development so once i'm uh, uh once i kind of have things hammered out to a point where I can't find anything else to hammer on, then I'll probably put it up at Patreon and ask for uh, ask if anybody wants to play test bits and pieces of it that I'm not that I'm not absolutely certain of. But but that's still going to be a while coming. I mean, there's a lot written for it, but um, but I feel uh, you know I don't know. I feel it's a genre that I love, and so I, I want to make sure that it's as right as I can make it. So I'm putting. You know, I'm putting a good bit of I'm putting a good bit more time into that than I did into my uh, one-off Star Wars RPG adaptation story game. A couple I want to ask ago. you about Western games. It is a genre that I feel has been firmly beaten to death. What? Yeah. Did sure. you, so, so you look you looked at the other RPGs and that were out there for it, and you said something's missing. 
So what is it that you're trying to achieve with yours that fills the hole that you found? Well, you know, what, what I like about what I like about West, the Western genre is um, everything, you know, honestly, everything that the purists would call revisionist. Uh, because the, the, I mean, the Western as a fiction, as a genre of fiction, filmmaking, even as a supposedly nonfiction storytelling going back to the 1860s and 1870s, was invented and thrived as, um, I mean, not to get too too much on it, but uh, but as um, a reinforcement of white supremacy in America. And there have been way too few westerns of any kind that have used the genre to examine that in a way that i that i responded to and i mean not to say there have been none but there but there haven't been enough one of the first uh, scenarios that i wrote for delta green wasn't a delta green scenario it was uh basically blood meridian except that the quote-unquote um comanches that you're hunting are actually kenyan and uh Mm, yeah, I read, I read them, that. Yeah, that once you fun. meet them, you realize that maybe uh, you might have made some poor choices in your line of work, and well, uh, yeah. that contract <laughs> with the governor isn't uh, isn't worth those those uh, pesos in gold. Yeah, yeah. I mean, any you know, I, I think I think anybody that decided to take up scalp hunting as a profession at any time in history wound up learning that it was not a great idea eventually. Uh, for those of you not the listeners not familiar with scalp hunting, is when you uh, take a bounty from the government to go out and kill uh, supposedly um, what, what they would refer to as hostile Indians or Native Americans, but it would usually just end up any, being anyone with the right skin color to pass as whoever it was you're supposed to be killing. And then they'd go and they'd piss mm-hmm. off the locals and then, and then we would get back to the government and the government would put a bounty on them and the cycle continues. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was ugly and horrifying. And it goes way back. I mean, the you know there were there was uh, uh scout hunting for pay in the uh in 1600s new england you know i mean it, that goes back in the in the in north america that goes back to the beginning of the of the americas um and or, or for european north america i should say you know i mean among the natives there was you know there's there's been there's been scalping as an expression of war for uh you know a thousand years or more and are you going uh in the direction of say like a um, an Adam Scott Glancy product where there's going to be like a deep, um, simu- almost simulationist bent of historical accuracy, or is it more the idea is the important thing? No, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I could, and there's a, there's certainly a part of me that, um, that always tries to do that. And I have to kind of squelch that whenever I'm working on something. So, um, so right now my, my beloved, uh, my beloved disease rules for, uh, for gunslinger, for example, which I absolutely love and I want them to be an integral part and heartbreaking part of any campaign. Um, you know, they may need to get trimmed a bit. No typhus and cholera for me. Oh, they're all uh, in there. Yeah. You know, gold, gold rush era illnesses and hey, consumption as, as i mean as, yeah, as i try to disagree. remind everybody if, if syphilis was good enough for wild bill hickok it's good enough for you i think that's the episode title right there yeah yeah <laughs> so uh one of the things uh, we were curious about we a few of us played in a, a playtest game of yours sometime back and normally when, when any of us in the public realm here play test a double green scenario it's kind of at like the 80 or 90 percent point I remember specifically when you were in this, you were up front about saying, hey, this is a very early product. 
just kind of come up with the idea, but you want to see where it goes. This was uh, the Valentine's Day scenario, if you'll recall, yeah. where I, I wasted an hour of everyone's time trying to get Roll20's audio to work. Yeah. I remember which, that. Uh, which, 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 one, like, which, which game it was that? It was the one was you ran, and it, it was taking place in the Homewood area, and uh, there was like a lady who had oh, her daughter right, on right, home. right, yeah. Yeah, I called it falling out. Yeah, I still, yeah. I still haven't fin- haven't finished that. I mean, I, I kind spent, of I like the idea behind it, but I but I haven't gotten it back into it yet. If I remember correctly, we spent the first three hours interviewing people and getting nowhere, and in the last fourth hour, in a desperate battle against a strange creature. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I was I was yeah. trying to shoot my gun and drag Max's character out of the building at the same time, and I got like a forty. Yeah, because I done some, I did something rather stupid. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a neat scenario, and we were curious if that had got any uh, any further. Oh yeah, yeah, not 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 really. I mean, I've got all the notes for it, you know, and I and I think I uh, just that one play test gave me lots of uh, lots of ideas on how to kind of tighten it up and, and improve it. Nice. Uh, so, but uh, so I think I think it'll I think it'll go somewhere once I get around to it. But it's it's kind of low on the low on the priority list right now because um, I've got so many other projects that I'm obliged to finish. Yeah, I can I can see that. Um, yeah. we, in terms of uh, you know the the flagship product here, uh, Delta Green, what's in the pipe for that? Uh, well, we've got um, uh, uh, D- uh, Dennis's uh, uh, King and Yellow campaign, Impossible Landscapes, which is mostly done. Uh, I think he's he's redoing like doing some final revisions after my deep dive edit through it. And then it'll get another editing pass, which hopefully won't turn up anything that needs to get more revisions and therefore call for another editing pass. But sometimes that's how it happens. So that's uh, that's that's most of the way finished. And uh, and he's been working on illustrations for it because he has to illustrate it as well as write the thing. So um, and he went way over budget on the the size of the book so the the illustration requirements are exorbitant well, the thing the thing that him. i was thinking about with impossible landscapes uh is that in 30 years of delta green existing that is the mm-hmm. first campaign yeah yeah the first yeah yeah i mean there was uh he did he did future perfect back in the 2000s and that's um, fair in in four parts but that was but it's a little different because future perfect was uh um, well i mean when he first it 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 kind of took took some turns i mean when he first started working on it his idea was each of these four parts can be a standalone thing but it turned out that you know the first two parts you could swap them out but part three and part four were exactly where they had to be you know you're not starting in part three of that campaign because part three is what leads directly into part four it's the only thing that leads directly into part four so um so yeah so that so so we did that um but we haven't and i've and i've re i've reworked that and edited it for the new edition of the game but um but we haven't gone through and given it all new illustrations and officially republished it you know uh, put it in print or anything we're kind of i think we're waiting for uh he's, he's doing another project another project called um those who come after which uh which is a a threat book looking at the Yithians, um, which Future Perfect deals with. I think he's going to want to sort of um, say his, use that to make his sort of full expression of what is in his head for that mythology in Delta Green. And then we'll see if Future Perfect still makes sense 
you know, and uh, to re- to rework it further. I do like what you guys did with the lawyer, though, um, or what what Tynes did with it in um, Labyrinth, because we were super super harshly critical of Labyrinth. But one thing I liked about uh, Prana's sodality was that it took Loigor, which are themselves not necessarily super interactive because they're mm-hmm. psychic rocks that live, you know, a mile underground, and right. took that and turned it into something you could actually play. And so I'm yeah. I'm 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 cautiously optimistic about those who come before because I'm hoping it'll do the same thing for the Yithians. Uh, I was very happy with it, the uh, with what we were able to do with the the Loiger and Delta Green um, because there was so much material that. Uh, all the previous editions of Call of Cthulhu, for instance, just left out or sort of skated over about the Loiger as a threat. And that was a deliberate choice because the Loiger as a threat are kind of overwhelming. You know, you can make it the Loiger, the role-playing game, and, and you wouldn't be scratching the surface of what went into just that one short story that they appeared in. Uh, but nevertheless, we we specifically asked Ken Height, to, uh, who did the did who did that write up to um you know to to really do an adaptation uh in as much depth as he thought was necessary so if you wanted to um you know if you wanted to make your delta green campaign be about encountering the loiger and digging into that encounter in uh, to to a large extent you'd have all the materials you need jake uh, you so were a yeah, huge was... fan of of Ligers, and you you had an idea for that um i which idea are you referring to because i've had several i'm referring to the whole one where like you 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 posited that the whole reason why the roosevelt family had gone from like stalwart paragons of outdoorsmanship to sickly you know polio ridden academics was the malign influence of the Loigor working on the secret society that they developed to contain the malicious influence of the evil rock people that had yeah, been existing yeah. America's national parks. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, I like that. I like the Loiger as a threat because I figured that the only way you could really like make them go away was to try and isolate them. So like Teddy mm-hmm. Roosevelt started the national parks as a way to put the Loiger stones in the middle of nowhere so that they would do as least harm as possible and then installed like a secret cabal of uh, like a fraternal order that kept people from accessing the Liger stones. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. And I, and I backed that up with like all the times you see people fall into the Grand Canyon because yeah. that's one of the stat abilities that the Liger have in the new uh, stat block is that they can like psychically push people away. Oh yeah. Well, they, well, they can literally compel you to suicide if you if they yeah, get yeah, the yeah. correct combination of sand tests in there. Right. So that was the only logical solution because I've tried to figure like how do you beat the Loiger? Like what is the player's like best, most optimal way for beating the Loiger? And that's uh-huh. it. like all you can really do is just put t- take the Loiger and push them somewhere else. Yeah, because they're, yeah, they're going to come back. That's probably about right. Yeah. You can't defeat them; they're going to come back. It's just a matter of yeah. like being put, put prepared. It, if you got one, put it in a you know, and then put, you spot put, it, it, put it in orbit or drop it into the Marinara uh, trench. Oh, the Marinara a- trench. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> It is indeed a, a spicy meatball. Ye- it, exactly. Yeet the Loiger stone into the sun. No, that doesn't work. Why not? It's because in order to yeet something into the sun, you first have to cancel out all of the Earth's um, angular momentum. It's actually harder to go to the sun than anywhere else in the solar system. How is it hard to launch a rocket into the sun? Because you have to, you have to counteract all of the Earth's angular momentum going around the sun. You have to reduce that to zero. I don't understand. You, I'll, you, I'll show you the point. math after we're done. Okay. All right. Yeah, all right. Just, just the, the space gun. I'll, I'll, show, I'll show you the math after. The thing that I was wondering about, because um, because we've interviewed several members of the of the Delta Green team now, 
uh, both of the partnership and sort of the 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 partner um, adjacent. Yeah, partner adjacent, the ancillary members. Yeah. And the thing that interests me is that everyone's everyone has a different idea of what Delta Green is about has a different mm-hmm. way that they like to run games and a different way that they kind of describe what's important to them. So that's a question that I think we're going to ask everyone who comes on our show. And I guess I'll ask you, uh, what is Delta Green about to you when you run Delta Green? What are the important things to make sure you include when you write for the game? What is it that you try to emphasize? Yeah. Uh, what, I mean, what I respond to most is, uh, is probably the, the, um, the issue, I mean, really, I guess it just comes down to the issue of courage and um, what what it takes to keep standing when a lot is on the line and uh, and and whatever hope you have for achieving something important is quickly vanishing. Uh, that so that that's kind of that, I think that's the, that's sort of the the thing that that pushes my buttons the most and um, and it and you can kind of. You can play that in the cosmic horror of Delta Green very efficiently because Delta Green is meant to be unforgiving. You know, it's meant to be the the least um, user friendly version of the Cthulhu mythos, and so uh, so that's kind of that's 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 probably how I approach every you know everything that I write for it. Um, so you know, the scenarios that I write tend to I th- I think tend to have. You know, I mean, I love doing, I love investigations and I love the, I love doing the procedural side of the, uh, of the investigations just because I've got a lot of, well, I mean, that's kind of a chicken and egg thing, right? I've got, I've got tons of background in what, uh, how, how federal law enforcement works, how law enforcement works in general. Um, and, uh, and so, and, 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 and so, at the, and because I've got a lot of interest in that, I like writing about it and, uh. And I'm also conscious of the fact that most most people who write about that procedural uh, those procedural issues, you know how these situations actually unfold, do it really really sloppily, and they just sort of hand wave and make shit up. Even the magnificently talented and successful ones. Um, and uh, and so I like the challenge of doing that in doing that side of things in a way that I think is right. So Delta Green kind of works on a lot of levels for uh, for my interests and uh, proclivities. So with the um, you know so with scenarios, I mean when I wrote uh, I, I wrote a scenario called Dermophilia, which is about a police investigation. That, One of my favorites. Uh, Oh, good. That's awesome. Uh, so it's about a police investigation that that Delta Green's not involved with at first, but it just starts going sideways really quickly, and so your agents get called in to sort of intervene and um, you know do some magic tricks to distract everybody while uh, while they deal with the the threat. Um, and and uh, and I just you know I mean that, again that's just sort of an example because. I know that world pretty well as a sort of from secondhand, you know, I've never been a, a cop or a federal agent myself, but, um, but I'm pretty well steeped in that world. So, so, um, so that's something I can kind of bring to the table and bring to the writing that I enjoy that, um, that I feel like not a lot of people are, are bothering with. From what I've seen, um, law enforcement and military type people typically respond positively to Delta Green. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and and I mean that's always an interesting thing because in, in, uh, in real life, not necessarily so much in the setting. <laughs> well, right. <laughs> yeah, 
that gets into an issue that's pretty deep on the setting and on the the themes of the setting uh, that I'm fascinated by psychologically. But um, but yeah, our, the response that we get is has been really really solid and really solidly positive. And I I have a feeling that's just that's partially. I think it's partially because it's a game about playing military people and you know police officers that can just throw their badges on the ground and say, all right, we're going to take care of shit now. Um, right. There's the, and, the, the fantasy of everyone who's yeah. got the Punisher skull on the back of his, the back of his truck. Right. And, um, and at the same time, we did a lot of, a lot of work to get the, not only get the details right, but get the big picture right. Um, you know, we, we approached, uh, and this was, this was mostly, this, this was mostly me, uh, working with Chris Gunning, but we approached the, um, the presentation of that world as uh, respectfully as we could, and so I think I think yeah I think that's that's what it comes down to, when, you know that that people really respond to it, uh, respond to it well, which is which is very cool. Um, yeah, there's there's a, there are also a lot of a lot of people that find Delta Green and get into it for really ironic reasons, you know, in my opinion. Um, because yeah, you can play it as uh, as a vigilante power fantasy, and well, I, I'm I'm sure tons of people do. But the game is ultimately, you know, it, it tries to be about the bad sides of doing that. Well, I, re- I think it was Gunning who mentioned this. It, it may have been somebody else that Delta Green is a game where the characters are very powerful in the world of Earth and humans. They are people who. Right can probably realistically kill someone and not face any consequences. They can do right. all kinds yeah. of bad stuff and get away with it. And yet they are small potatoes compared to the other stuff that lives in the universe. It's a game about kicking around the people that you can you can afford to kick around and then just right. getting absolutely backhanded by something much scarier than yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a that's a big part of it. Um yeah, I mean Delta Green characters you know, we we sort of, uh, I mean, we 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 very deliberately kind of um, use the setting and use the role of most player characters in the setting to um, skip past a lot of the questions of, oh my gosh, how can we deal with these? You know, can we can we deal with the cops? You know, can we? Uh, do I know how? Do I know how to hide a body? I mean, in most Delta Green groups, there is at least one character who can either circumvent, knows how to circumvent the law, or knows how to fudge evidence, or knows how to spy things up so you leave very few traces, or or whatever. Um, and that that becomes its own source of suspense in in almost every Delta Green game I've seen. Uh, but it but also you know it's it's it allows you to kind of get through that as a part of the game but not the entirety of the game so that you can get to the really scary shit one of the most beautiful design decisions in delta green is to have the criminology skill be used for both knowing about criminals and being a criminal so that the criminal (laughs) profession (laughs) and the federal law enforcement profession are both equally good at hiding bodies yeah oh yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah that was uh I, i think that was my rewrite of that skill that 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 went in that direction. I think, I don't remember exactly, but but it, but if if it, if that was old Greg, then I love I love the way it went. The the other thing that you mentioned earlier, you were talking about the psychological side, and um, one thing that I, I always felt was underexplored as an agent motivation in in Delta Green. And you mentioned, you know, we talk about law enforcement, police, and stuff. That there's a, a personality type that that gets very easily addicted to mm-hmm. the 
to to stuff like combat or to the the stress of yeah. fighting things. And yeah, that's absolutely. Sort of, that sort of character is the one who's drawn to Delta Green because they don't pay you, and right. usually you it ends up killing you. There's no reason to do it except for a sense of duty or yeah. because it is in a twisted way fun for you. Well, and duty, honestly, duty, duty burns out of people really quickly. Um, in in most in in these kind in these kinds of careers, you know, I mean, if you look at uh, if you look at, a, I mean, the closest, the, the, the place to look for this kind of thing is not in police officers, it's in intelligence assets. You know, and when people become spies, they live their whole lives doing secret shit and lying about it all the time. And their, you know, their resting stress level, so to speak, is through the roof for the rest of their lives. And so people that get into that, uh, you know, like, like the, uh, there was a, oh, geez, I don't remember what the acronym always stood, exactly stood for, but, you know, one of the, one of the studies that one of the intelligence agencies did on who you, who's, a, who's your best recruit, you know, essentially getting somebody that's doing it for um, ideological reasons. Money, ideology, compromise, not, ego. Yeah, yeah, mice. yeah, there you go. Yeah, mice, yeah. And, um, but ideology, you know, it, you live with that much stress and awfulness for that long and ideology tends to shift and it tends to get less compelling um than just plain old say spite and so um and so yeah what you're talking about with uh people that stay involved in for example uh you know the special operations world is full of guys suffering from ptsd and they stay in the in the job um because they thrill on it, you know, and, and that, and part of that in a lot of cases, I think is that um, the, the stress of that kind of action, it's it, like, it gives you some place to put your trauma, you know, it gives you a place to put your, uh, to put your stress and your trauma in a way that you can kind of make sense of and feel better in control of than when you go home and you don't have anywhere to put it. You know, you go home and you've still got the shit that you're dealing with, but you don't have a box to put it in where it belongs. And um, and so, yeah, I think that absolutely can be a very fruitful thing to explore with Delta Green agents. Yeah, and I've, I've read a lot of, you know, war memoirs and, and whatnot and guys who just couldn't, they had to go back because, you know, one, they were thriving on it and two, they left friends there who you know they had right. to be there to support them so there's that which i think one of the things i really like with delta green is the bond system is a really mm-hmm. really clever way to make you in theory i mean you can you can ignore them i guess but in theory make you care about you know how much damage you're doing to yourself because it's not you don't care if it affects you it's affecting right. other people right yeah uh yeah absolutely and that, that that's that's exactly the the point of that the, of those rules um and and that's i mean that's a side of the rule that really shines in long-term games you know it's 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 a one of the one of the challenges that i have running the game in one shots at conventions and whatever is making the bonds rules meaningful and potent because they just become you know they're they're sanity armor mechanically but you don't you don't if it's just a one-off right you don't really get the sense of this is a person that it, it, who is in this world and that my character's interacting with in some way. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, so, that, so, but in long-term games, you know, I mean, that's, that's where those rules really, we had really a problem the four. at the uh, open table where, because the way the Delta green bond rules work is that when something bad happens, you get bonds with your fellow agents, but because we kind of run like a revolving door, 
like an op- like a uh, just mm-hmm. a you know usually a random selection of, of players and characters. People were getting yeah. sets of every time something bad, bad happens, you have a chance to get Delta Green Bond. You get a Delta Green Bond right. with everyone in that group. That torpedoes <laughs> right. all your regular bonds. So people yeah, were going yeah. through like one or two games and getting like seven or eight Delta Green Bonds. And (laughs) then it became a problem because, um, like, you know, on one hand, it's realistic because one of the things that that will happen to your your military, your law enforcement people is one of the reasons why they have um, PTSD and trouble and adjusting and so on is that most of the time in the civilian world, people don't care about you and Mm -hmm. or are indifferent or actively hostile. Whereas in the military, you're surrounded constantly by people who would kill and die for you. And there's not really that many places you can find that. So the bond yeah. system makes total sense. But then, you know, if you're forming Delta Green Mons left and right, that almost instantly annihilates all your regular right, human bonds, yeah. which is something that is supposed to happen mechanically, but it's supposed to take a maybe yeah. a bit longer. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, when you know, when when I wrote those rules, that was you know, I I didn't really, I don't think I had a, the the campaign structure that you're talking about. Right, which isn't yeah. to say it isn't valid, but it just wasn't. It wasn't even. It's atypical. Yeah, no. I mean, the way that the way that I would, I, the, the thing I would probably do to add, you know, if we decide we're going to do another printing of the agent's handbook, whenever that happens, and we have, you know, we want to go in and tweak things again, then um, I would, I, I, I might, I might want to add something along the lines of, yeah, like everywhere that it says, uh, "fuck up your bonds," except for Delta Green bonds. Uh, maybe figure out some way to say that as unless all you have is Delta Green bonds, and then go to town on those. Yeah. Oh, one and one one more question because you said you're the editor. Who is the absolute legend who wrote the vehicle ramming rules? <laughs> uh, for for good or for ill, that was me. I'm not okay. convinced it was for okay. good. Okay. Because because I just want to point out that the deadliest thing in the in the world of Delta uh-huh. Green is an MRAP yeah. ramming something because it does 130 percent lethality. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, more than a nuclear well, bomb. Hey, I mean, what was what was the thing? What was the thing that killed Cthulhu? It was a boat. steamboat. This, this is That's what I right. always say. Yeah. Yeah. So 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 suck on that, Dennis. <laughs> Jim, why don't you tell us about some of your um, your work on swords and sorceries? Because uh, I've been paying attention to it and I like what I see there. So I think other people might like. Oh, it too. Oh, cool. Thank you. Yeah, I really. Yeah, I thought, yeah. It's, I it's, a couple of them really liked them, so definitely. Yeah, good deal. Now, yeah, it's that. That's a that's a fun project. Um, I've uh, uh, I've got. I, I essentially. I, I think the pattern that's setting in is uh, at the beginning of each year or so. I uh, I start I start working really heavily on some side project when working on Delta Green stuff is just too stressful for me. And uh, and so uh, the Swords and Sorceries was that for about a year and a half. And um, and then Gunslinger is that right now. But the uh, but swords and sorceries was uh, what I wanted. Uh, my, basically, where it, what it started was uh, I, I had fun playing fifth edition D anD D, but um, but I but I also do a lot of reading in history and in folklore and in mythology and um, and the things that are most interesting to me on all those is not necessarily the mythology, but the roots of mythology and where the myths that we're really familiar with evolved from and came from. And there's a lot of overlap in that with monsters that are in Dungeons and Dragons and have been from the very beginning. And because Dungeons and Dragons from the 70s onward very quickly became uh, its own genre, you know, and uh, and became kind of its own thing where everything had its own D&D meaning, uh, the, the origins and the, the sort of... Um, 
I don't know, the, the kind of uh, implications, the mythic implications, the psychological implications of a lot of the folklore that spawned some of these monsters was has been kind of uh, scuffed away and replaced. And so what I started having fun with was looking at some of the classic D&D monsters and digging around in where did that idea come from originally. And uh, that very, very quickly um, started inspiring adventure ideas. And so I started putting, uh, I started writing, uh, writing some adventures for that and just really had a blast doing it. So each of the swords and sorceries adventures, which we've published three, and I have another three or four finished, um, but each of them is sort of a self-contained adventure that you can play in. Most of the time you can play it in probably, uh, I don't know, 10-ish hours around a table. Uh, more than that if you're on, on, a, on a virtual tabletop. But, um, but, uh, but, the, but each of them sort of has its own tight focus. So the, the, um, uh, the, the second scenario, for instance, the Song of the Sun Queens, um, was, was a lot of fun because it gave me a, an excuse to dig around in a lot of uh, Central Eastern African mythology. And, uh, and, and the thing that interests me, the, the, the sort of seed of that that I got interested in was the blink dog in you know, going back to the very beginnings of Dungeons and Dragons and the earliest depictions of the Blink Dog way back in the day, uh, it was based on uh, like wild dogs, African wild dogs. And African wild dogs have a really specific look to them. Um, and once I realized that and I started digging around in, you know, what are African wild dogs like? You know, what are the, what are the, what, what folklore had to do with that? So I kind of, that, that inspired the whole adventure with the exception of uh sea demon's gold the other ones that i've read the song of the sun queen and uh, what's the the fire temple one the sun temple of the sun god is that it um the uh the third adventure is the tomb of fire tomb of fire yeah my bad yeah. um it's the they have this sort of like you play it as a longer session where there's a good amount of political wheeling and dealing and I noticed that mm -hmm. also was present in uh, Frost Giant's thing, where it seemed like there was something for everyone to do in the adventure. Yeah, good. Yeah, that, I mean that's 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 one of the that that was a specific goal, right? Because in D and D, especially because I mean Dungeons and Dragons is ultimately a fight game. You know, the game is a, 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 the game is built around uh, fight scenes, right? So every character that you play is a fight character in one way or another. But sure, at the I same time, if you're if you're not a fight player, then that can get a little old. And so, uh, so what the, that was a challenge that I deliberately wanted to undertake was to make adventures that had a lot of variety in what you were doing and how you how you, what kind of challenges were being put in front of your characters, uh, even under the assumption that your characters are just um, you know money grubbing scoundrels, right? Who who aren't really out to do anything any good in the they're put in these situations where they have a chance to, um, or they can just ignore that, be super greedy. But either way, there's going to be consequences. And um, and so uh, so yeah. But that, but part of that was part of that was was I was I, I wanted to make sure that there was more to it than just fights. Even knowing that Dungeons and Dragons is built around fights, it also has uh, you know it, it has it has the material in there, to play stuff out in an interesting way that doesn't have anything to do with 
with combat. And I I ran Sea uh, Demon's Gold at Gen Con last year, and it was one of the yeah better... no, nothing nothing but nothing but combat in Sea Demon's Gold. Oh yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> there's it's, very, it's there's no problem. It's got a really old school like dungeon crawl feel to it. I really liked how hard it was. Like the players at my table, they were suffering as level one characters trying to get through it because yeah. I mean, in D and D you've got level one and then you've got the rest of the game. Right. At least in Star yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's Oh yeah, no, it's it's two separate games. Yeah. And it was really cool that at the end of this, even though it was a dungeon crawl, there was still a really kind of a heavy, like a role play heavy choice there when you have mm-hmm. seated right, the right, idea yeah. of the, I'm not going to spoil the scenario, but there's like this one choice that players can make to kind of serve something uh, nefarious or insidious. And at my, at my Gen mm-hmm. Con table, it tore the four players apart. Like by the end of oh, it, wow. you know, yeah, and uh, so what's no, that's funny? That's great. I mean, that sounds great to me because that means that the choices weren't obvious. It was uh, two of them of the four players. Two of them ended up dead, and the last two um, uh, were kind of squabbling about what they should do. And uh, the it, it, it broke it down to where it was actually a total party kill by the end of it uh, because it was just such a challenging run. Like I said, they they were begging for a short rest, but that module does not let them <laughs> take rest. It doesn't. Oh, they can take rest. They can take plenty of rest. They just get, you know, interesting things happen to them while they're resting and getting those benefits. Yeah, they, they, they couldn't they couldn't rest. <laughs> they didn't want to do that. Right, you know. Yeah, they were too scared. Yeah. Again, you you got you know, you gotta make your choices. But uh but yeah, that's that's kind of what that series comes down to um it's the setting uh is is uh, what i have in mind for the setting my touchstone for all the adventures is it's set in kind of a uh, a faux mediterranean iron age um and so if you think kind of pre-classical greece um that's that's what i started that's what i found compelling you've got kind of this era between the the collapse of the bronze age civilizations and the the rise of of uh, of the greeks that uh that I, that I find really fruitful um, and worth exploring. So, uh, so it so it's sort of based on that, which gives it a dis, which is, is supposed to give it a distinctive feel and tone from traditional, you know, Forgotten Realms ish uh, Dungeons and Dragons with uh, with knights and and whatnot. You mentioned Robert E. Howard is an influence on it too, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You bet. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, so yeah, it's been a, it's been a lot of fun. So right now, like I said, we've got three of those adventures, and what happens with it beyond that is is kind of up in the air um, because that stuff is costly. I mean, apart from the time that I sink into writing, you know, writing every uh, we have uh, we have Kurt Komoda doing illustrations for them, which are absolutely gorgeous, but we also have to pay money to to Kurt. To Kurt. So all right, so what's something I was curious about? You know, I I have a, I vividly know the exact moment. I was introduced to the world of role-playing games. You know, it was Dungeons and Dragons. My cousin was teaching me. You know, that's still a fond memory. So, like, what what was your introduction to this world? How did this start for you? Uh, yeah, that was uh, God. I was in fifth grade, so it was uh, either either late nineteen seventy nine or early nineteen eighty, I believe, and. Um, and yeah, no, it was just my. Uh, I had a I had a buddy, the a kid that I was that I was close with in school, and um, 
And uh, I think I had just, like the two of us had just discovered uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. And so, you know, I got The Hobbit and read that. And then immediately, you know, I was was a bright kid. So uh, I immediately uh, badgered my mom into getting... Uh, getting the Lord of the Rings books, which was easy because I was a latchkey kid. So she was constantly guilty. It was easier to get her to do stuff. So, um, but I got the Lord of the Rings book and just started reading them on a nonstop loop. And, um, but yeah, like my friend Mike said, I remember we were, you know, it was like recess or something. And we were talking, and he was, we were talking and he said that he'd, he'd heard about this game that was like a, like a board game where you had, you played, you played. Uh, you had like knights and wizards and 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 fight warriors and orcs and things. And and I said, oh, that sounds really cool. We ought to. It, you know, he's like, it has these little figures that you move around. So I said, oh yeah, let's check that out. So, uh, so yeah. So I I got my you know I got my I again my handy mother to uh to buy the the first basic D and D game that was out there. And, um, and that was all she wrote. Like the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the addiction set in really, really rapidly, uh, from that. So I got that and, you know, I just basically me and Mike every, you know, from then on every, uh, every recess, you know, every, every, uh, every break that the, that the teachers said, Oh, it's time for us to go out to the park for this afternoon, you know, and you guys can enjoy the sun. We're like, great. That's D and D time. And, yeah. uh, you know, and I'd go over to his house in the afternoons, you know, which was like, I mean, it was, it's ridiculous. I was whatever, 10, 11 years old, you know, and this was so, and it was like a, oh God, I don't know, maybe a five mile bike ride, you know, along these insanely busy streets, um, Fair Oaks Boulevard in Sacramento. And uh, even back in the early, late seventies, early eighties, that was, you know, I mean, it might as well have been an interstate. And uh, so I was, you know, I didn't even have, a, I didn't own a backpack, right? So I was going over to, I was like taking my bike over to his house and I certainly didn't have a basket. I was just holding my, uh, you know, big box of uh, grenadier figures and my trapper keeper binder, you know, and the, all the, the little, the, the paperback rule books and all that shit kind of balanced on the handlebars as I was uh, uh, stranger thingsing my way across town. I was, to, I was just about uh, to say, you need to send like a legal cease and desist notice to oh, Netflix yeah. because it seems like right. they've stolen your identity <laughs> for those characters. Well, it's it's so... Oh, I, was yeah. gonna, I was gonna say more like True Detective S3, but um, <laughs> maybe maybe less... Maybe it has a happier ending. I did, I did right. think... I was thinking about that because it's so difficult to to imagine today the level of popularity that role-playing games had back in the old Ben days. Cause when I was, mm-hmm. when I was probably about the age you're describing in the story, I had like, I think it was either a three or 3.5 E um, like a, like a box set with a map and cardboard counters and the basic rules and stuff. But yeah. I couldn't find anyone to play it with. Cause people want to play video games. They wanted to, right. to just do, you know, all the stuff that yeah. was popular when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, well, what's been fascinating for me in the last couple of years is, uh, is the way that, uh, that that streaming shows, you know, like Critical Role and you know, and, and so many others, have uh, have normalized people, have have kind of allowed people who otherwise have no interest in this hobby to internalize what it's about and what it involves, um, and and of course computer games as well. You know, I mean, the hit points started in D and D, and then they showed up in. In I don't remember which was the first video game to have hit points, but it was probably like 1978, you know. And um, uh, but yeah, it's 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 kind of interesting to me because because I think you know it kind of goes in cycles, you know, or uh, 
dips, uh, you know, uh, uh, hills and valleys. If you're looking at the at a graph, right? Right. So, and so much of what Wizards is doing now is them being determined not to make the same mistakes as TSR did, which kind of killed the game back in the the old then days. And uh, that it's almost like the video game crash, where that that level of of success led to total market saturation, which then led to it cratering, which then led to it coming back. Yeah, I mean, when it first when it first uh, came out, uh, there wasn't anything else like it, you know, and it was an outlet, a social outlet for um, for an audience that didn't have anything equivalent as a social outlet. Um, I mean, there was like chess club, right? Kids like me, and um, and and, uh, and and that was it. You know, there was. Uh, I mean, at at that time, the really the, the those of us who were really smart and had a particular mathematical interest and had rich parents could get into computers. But um, but even so, you know, there the there was nothing going on like Dungeons and Dragons before uh, video games came along a few years later. And, um, and so, yeah, it became, it became an instant smash, you know, and because it appealed to young kids as well as, as well as adults. Um, and it was happening at the same time as all the ludicrous, uh, satanic panic, um, issues, they all sort of fed into each other. And those things gave it notoriety that just fed its popularity, um, which was really, really fucking stressful for all of us who were in the hobby at the time. And I know it was really stressful for the people at TSR, but it also fed sales. And um, and and uh, and it just it, it didn't do any harm to the games to the to the game's popularity. But then, yeah, you had um, you know it kind of took off, and then there were a good number of competitors that came out, and then you had computer games, uh, you know, uh, video games got hot both in arcades and uh, and in the really really crappy home video game. Uh, consoles. And so it started, you know, it started dipping. And then TSR, of course, made and Chaosium, all of these companies that were run by, um, that were run by creative types and gaming nerds that didn't have any business sense at all, um, started doing insanely stupid things. And, uh, and so their, uh, so their sales plummeted, which which didn't hurt things. And they kind of, so yeah, it, it's kind of, it, it kind of, it, it go it, it comes and goes. And so in recent years, we've seen it rising in the popular consciousness in a massive way again, um, because of the really slick production values of some of the streaming shows and, and, you know, streaming shows that, that involve uh, celebrities, you know, that people respond to and that have a lot of charisma. Um, So it's, it's been cool. I've enjoyed seeing that happen. And the, 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 the specific mention that it was the, uh, the basic set is so great because all of the, the retro clones of the old D and D games and the, the riffs on those, are all um, clones of basic because you got the you got the grognards now who say, well, you know, advanced was where it all went wrong, and second edition is where it all went wrong, <laughs> and right. and the, the basic set that was the you know the 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 perfect combination of like the simplicity, <laughs> but also because one of the things about the really early editions is that Gygax and Arneson and all those guys they knew how to run the game, but they sure as hell didn't know how to write it. Yeah, and it was only with later iterations that it was kind of 
codified yeah, the yeah, way yeah. I mean, basic, right right i mean the first the first the first basic D game which is the one that i that i've started with um they hire you know they hired eric holmes to do that who came into it from an academic academic perspective so he was accustomed to writing things to teach things to people um it's still i mean if you know if you look at the pdfs of that original game it's almost incomprehensible by the by the standards that we you know that we that we adhere to nowadays um but it was good enough that a smart 10 year old could could worm their way through it and figure out what was amazing in there and run with it um but yeah i mean the 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 uh <laughs> the grog yard thing really I, I always find really amusing because i i have a feeling that nine times out of ten what it really comes down to when somebody starts arguing about which version of the game was the perfect ideal version, what that ultimately means is when was I having the most fun with it and the most happy with it, with the game, which has almost nothing to do with the game itself as much as it has to do with what age you were when you were having the most joy. We we and, had this uh, exact conversation on this show because we were talking about games oh, yeah. games you'll never play for whatever reason, you know, oh, this uh -huh. game has a cool setting, but it has, you know, XYZ problem with it. The mechanics are bad or the settings incomprehensible. And Kevin, yours was the D&D that I played when I was 10. Yeah, I mean, I'll never get that back. It's it's a fun memory, but it's, <laughs> that's all it is. And to be fair, the other, right, one I, right. the other game I never play is Phoenix Command, because I don't think anyone knows the rules of that. <laughs> but I want it so bad. Uh, yeah, there's, uh, so I know that in the Phoenix Command world, there's me and there's uh, Jesper Anderson. And that's it. So if you can rope if you can rope one Mega of us four. into playing Phoenix Command or Living Steel, uh, you know, where I I know there's two of us out there that know and like well, those rules. When you when you kickstart the next thing, you made that a ridiculously high reward <laughs> tier, you've got my money. Right. <laughs> yeah, I've uh no, I loved Living Steel. I mean, not even not the rules so much, but I loved the science fiction in it behind Living Steel when it first came out in the late 80s. Um I I ate that stuff up and um I still have letters that I've like got from the author from Dave McKenzie who was the the main author on that game um where I just sent him just these stupid fanboy questions that you know you would post on an internet forum and sound like an idiot these days but back then we didn't have that so i just wrote letters to them because they put a thing saying send a self-addressed stamped envelope and we'll answer your questions and i took them up on that so i still have his like responses where i would write him i would write things like you know i really really want to know more about the 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 uh the the like the personnel structure you know the table of or what well, i didn't say table of organizations i didn't know <laughs> that term then but you know of of the uh of the uh of the swords right these powered armor units you know who's in charge of what how do they how do they who who, who do answers to who how does this all work and uh you know he he wrote he like wrote back it's all hand you know he just wrote it out by hand this really detailed breakdown of the rank structure and everything else it was great but um but yeah, so I had a lot of fun with that. I, I, I've I've toyed with the idea continually for the past fifteen years or so of trying to um, either rewrite, you know, Living Steel and file the serial numbers off, or find Dave McKenzie and Barry Nakazono and seeing if I could get a a license from them to use the to use that setting in a new game. But I just I've never really gone anywhere with it because the real world eventually creeps in and tells me. Um, that's the kind of project that would be an absolute uh, legend for me and maybe three other people, <laughs> and, and, and that's it. 
Well, maybe so, you can do it next next holiday season when you you know double green gets too intense and you start another side project. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. I've I've had a lot of fun writing for um. A, a lot, I've had a lot more fun doing science fiction stuff with old school traveler uh the last few months than um than i expected once i really started digging into it so so that's a distinct possibility i, I like the idea of, of of living steel what i liked about living steel which which i think they never really explored in the game was the game was the original game the idea of it was you're you're playing these these um really souped up awesome soldiers who uh, are hooked up with this amazing power armor but you uh you know you you sort of wake up after losing a war and being killed you thought in this war and you're on a completely different planet and it's hundreds and hundreds of years later and your civilization is absolutely gone but the the big empire the imperium that you are fighting against is all fucked up now because it's been attacked by these aliens that um are ruining everything because they're weird and psychic and gross and uh and so and there was this there was this old this really long-term conspiracy to just save some of the people from the seven worlds and put them in places where they could eventually be woke up and turned into an insurgency that could try to relaunch their civilization and their with their ideals. Um, and so it starts off, you start off with that on this planet that is essentially, you know, newly post-apocalyptic, where all of civilization has collapsed. And the big long-term challenge is rebuilding civilization. Um, but you've got power armor and shit. So so the game was about was supposed to be about the challenge of um, putting the, you know, turning the power back on and uh, repairing things, you know, and finding supplies and finding materials, the sort of survival stuff, um, which, which got kind of the rules for, for that side of things got, were, were very incomplete in the game compared to the um, astonishingly ludicrously complete <laughs> rules for shooting things. So, uh, so yeah, I don't know. I, I, like I said, I dug that game. I really, really dug that game uh but it's hard to play have you actually had a chance to play it or is is this one of your games you want to play but probably never will i've i've played it a few times i i ran a i ran a campaign um when it first came out uh this was the first edition came out in 1987 so this was so when i when i started playing it with my friends was probably i think i got it really quickly after it came out the first the first time so this would have been when Oh God, when I was uh, 18 or 19, um, something like that. And um, so I, so I ran a campaign with, uh, with my friends uh, and for, I don't know, a few months, maybe a year. And then I moved across country, you know, we all were out of high school and going our ways. And then, um, and then that was it for a long time. And then about, I don't know, six or seven years ago, I, uh, I ran a, session one or two game sessions for my some of my local friends because uh you know i had they were all curious about it and some of them had seen it around back in the day but never played it or they had heard horror stories of of the complexity and detail of the of the combat rules and were just morbidly curious so uh so yeah so i put a i put a thing together and ran it for a session or two for them um which which was fun but again the 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 combat rules are 
you know, this is the deal with aces and eights too, which I've run to, a, to great success for years and years and years. But the combat rules are so complex that you essentially, if like you have to have the game master who knows them inside and out, and then nobody else will ever learn them because they're that hard and they're that involved. Oh, so it really Ugh, falls on that. Hurts. Yeah, it really I know, I know that. The, yeah, it falls on the GM to kind of um, to kind of uh, be the rule book for everybody at the same time as doing all the GM stuff. So so it was so we you know we played it a couple of times. And I probably could have played it more because I'm okay with arcane rule sets you know i can i can handle them but the players were kind of it was like the you know the when when they had a big a big firefight you know the 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 fiction that emerged from that right if you're observing if you're sort of replaying it in your head was 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 really compelling and cool but the work that it took to get there was just tedious yeah um it sounds a bit like Twilight 2000 in terms of both of its premise mm-hmm. its and its arcane firearms-based mechanics. Because that was another game that yeah. I... A bunch of people on the Night of the Opera server, which is the server that we play the game on, um, got really into Twilight 2000. And one of the things they were saying is that it's a game that produces these cool emergent narratives, but it is an absolute chore to calculate something as simple as firing a burst of bullets at a guy. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so living, I feel like that, that's what, and that's exactly why, like I said, every few years I get this sort of uh, self-destructive urge to try to reboot living steel in a way that would be more user-friendly, you know, using the one roll engine or using the Delta green rule set or, or something. But, but yeah, that, that, that feels like another thing that the would be like the amount of work it would take to make that happen would, would not be worth, (laughs) would not be worth the experience. I got out of it afterward. I know it's possible to uh, to take because there's a um, there's a character based role playing rule set for for the BattleTech setting, and it's designed to sort of plug into the tabletop war game rules. And mm-hmm. hearing you talk about Living Steel, and I, I can hear the enthusiasm when you talk about this is clearly <laughs> something that you enjoy. Uh, I yeah. think it sounds more complicated than that. <laughs> it may be, yeah, yeah. No, Living Steel and Phoenix Command. Um, I mean, they're the same combat rules engine. It started with Phoenix Command, and then they sort of um, started with Phoenix Command, which uh, I think was all Barry Nakazono was the author of that. Who uh, is still? I mean, he's out there. He's not in gaming anymore. But even then, he was thirty years ago. He was new, if I remember right, was new at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and he's still there. You know, so he's literally a rocket scientist writing these rules. Um, and nice. uh, and then they took the, but they took the. They took the the combat rules for Phoenix Command and bolted them onto the science fiction ideas in, that that Dave McKenzie had in uh, Living Steel, if I remember my history right. And uh, so that so that's how those are related. Um, and that that like there was a second edition of Liv- of Living Steel that that simplified things a good bit. So it was sort of Phoenix Command Light, but um, but you know, and in fact, the first edition of Living Steel was Phoenix Command Light. And then the second edition to Living Steel was Living Steel Light, but even so, it's it was so hard for people to wrap their heads around. But yeah, this is these are rules where it was like every weapon, you know, had a, a damage class, which is based on the the like the size, the physical size of the uh, uh, of the bullet, 
and uh, and a penetration Jeez. rating, which was going to determine you're right how far it was going to go into the target, uh, and how far how well it would penetrate armor, and uh, and so you're you're you would look at you would cross reference those things on a you know you'd roll your d one thousand for the hit location and cross reference the uh, the uh, the penetration rating and the damage class, and that would give you the you know the amount of the the damage score this that you have to like apply to your character. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm just getting says, started. I could describe this for an hour, and it would still not scratch the surface. Sounds ideal for everybody who says that Delta Green needs to have a separate stat line for AR-15s and AK-47s. <laughs> oh <laughs> right. wait, that actually made it in the damn errata. Oh wait, did it? It did. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Some, yeah some, did. Some, someone thought that oh, you know, we need to reflect the difference in bullet weight between seven point six two by thirty nine and five five six by forty five. Well, I can no longer yeah, do my yeah, joke no, that now, was right? Me. I mean, that was that was that was that was an easy decision to make, though, because the way that we set those those rifles up is I had you know I had sort of the your your carbine your carbines doing a D twelve, and then the next level up was your thirty out sixes doing a D twelve plus two, and so you had that D twelve plus one just waiting for somebody to put something into it, well, and well, it turns out that the AK forty seven fit that perfectly. I I. I strongly disagree because I don't think there should be um, a free lunch in Delta Green. I don't think there should be a weapon that does more damage and has no downsides. I think if you want to start uh-huh. talking about, you know, AK versus AR, okay, absolutely right. More bullet weight, but also like worse ergonomics. Uh-huh. It's got, you know, design sensibilities. They put the fucking charging handle on the right side. You know, we're, we're getting yeah. into some territory that I think you guys expressed an interest in staying away from. <laughs> Right. Well, you know, again, I mean, having a thing saying it's uh, it's plus one damage is 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 not not that technical. It's not that technical, but but if every player can, is going to do it from now on, because what do you do when you look at the big list of firearms that I call Cthulhu? Uh, yeah, you no, reach I mean, for the thing that has the biggest number. I mean, that's fine. I've never seen anybody do it in in my games, but that's not to say other people aren't doing it. They may be doing it all the time in in, in everybody else's games. But you know, I mean, I would I would I would just advise people if that comes up to play up the the downsides. You know, if if uh you know look at if look up how often AK forty sevens are being used to shoot people up these days, and you know, in the locations where your agents are active, and if it's rare, then the fact that um, you've got an AK-47 shooting in these weird circumstances here and an AK-47 shooting in these weird but similar circumstances over here should come back on the players. And so I, I, I love it. This is America. We do our school shootings with ARs here. That's right. Yeah, come on. What country are you in? Well, I'm glad it was you that made that rules change, uh, Shane, because that makes my <laughs> joke like 10 times better. <laughs> <laughs>